Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got the chaplain version of Russ Cole, my good buddy Mark Weathers, doing the podcast. But before we get to that, I've got to tell you about our sponsors. Our sponsor for the month is a good one, and I'm going to tell you about that from my kitchen. The rest of my normal sound equipment is already packed up because I'm moving south, but we've got the old USB mic that we used to use. It's right here. And so I've got one of my daughters, Avery, who's going to tell us who the sponsor is for this month. Avery, who is it? National Conference. Conference. On. On. Youth Ministries. Youth Ministries. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The National Conference on Youth Ministries. It's been around for over 25 years. This year's conference will be held in Colorado Springs the week of January 4th through 7th. The overall purpose of the National Conference on Youth Ministries is to provide professional level training for men and women, men and women involved in youth ministry all across the nation. It was established to offer training and education for the growing and maturing efforts of the youth minister and lay youth workers. At the conference, you'll be able to hear from nationally known youth ministry experts and theologians and people who just simply love youth ministers. You'll also hear from local youth workers who are in the trenches just like you. But the most important thing that you get to do at NCYM is spend time connecting with other youth workers who love teenagers and want to bring them closer to God, youth ministers who understand your passion and your struggles. You can find out more about the schedule, make your hotel reservations, and register for the conference at the NCYM website, which is ncym.org. Make your plans quickly to take advantage of the early bird rates, which end October 12th. That's just around the corner. Early bird rates will save you $55 off the full price of the conference. Save 55 bucks. That's a great deal. And that's it. NCYM.org for more information. And without further ado, here it is. Me and Mark Weathers doing the thing. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we're coming to you from my dining room table. And my old buddy, Mark Weathers, is on the show. How are you, Mark? Luke, it's good to be here. Mark is one of my longstanding friends. We've known each other since probably around 2000-ish. Right. And you've never been on the podcast before. You're someone I've always thought, I need to talk to Mark, and it's never happened. I thought I had to write a book first. You need to write a book. <laughs> but no, you don't need to write a book to come on the podcast. Okay. Um, now, I feel like I need to introduce you to some of my listeners because they might not know you. You are you're like the closest equivalent I have in my life to the character from True Detectives that Matthew McConaughey played, Russ Cole. My, you... my sister said that to me. Really? Yeah. Did you Did you watch the show? I did watch it. Okay, did you go back and just like read the transcript or the the cuz I've known you to read movie yes, scripts. I reread a lot of the things that he said in the show. Which that's part of the reason why you're like Roscoe cuz you would think hey, that sounds like a fun thing to do. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. What did you think of the the character? Um Oh, first of all, why did your sister say that she, Christy? Th- yes, yeah. Christy uh watched the first episode and there's this conversation uh between Rust and Marty in the first episode in which Marty's just kind of picking Rust's brain about what type of person he's actually is. Uh And Rust says some things that are uh, really troubling to Marty about the meaning of humanity. (laughs) And my sister knows that I don't, I don't speak those things to people, but it's just a couple degrees off of like <laughs> where my soul rests. Yeah. So you're, you're a brilliant person. You're a chaplain uh, in what, what's the at hospital? Harris Methodist Hospital. Yeah, Harris Methodist, and 
you're a brilliant person. I don't know if you're going to go to heaven or not. I don't know if you're going to make it in, but I, if I get a vote, I'm going to try to like grandfather you in and say, he's with me. Let him in. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I yeah. think hell will have better company, <laughs> which is why. That's how I'm rolling. That's where I'm putting my chips is on hell. Is that what your line is when you go to deal with someone at the critical point of life? Hey, I'm a chaplain. Let me tell you something. I feel like there's going to be some good company in hell. Either well, way, you're good. I, I don't say that. I censor myself with the dying. Oh, goodness. I do. Okay. We were... <laughs> this is terrible. Um, we just jumped right in. We jumped right in. Now, we were at ACU together at the same time. Right. Uh, people joke that I say that my father's a psychologist way too much. Okay. Uh, but you are also the son of a professor. Uh, your yes. Your dad's in the English department. Yes. And uh, he was actually a uh, professor of mine. I liked your dad. Yeah. Steve. He's great. Uh-huh. And then uh, you finished up, got a master's after your undergrad at ACU. Same right. time I was doing that. And then you recently went back and got an MDiv at TCU. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, why did you go back and get another degree? Did you switch denominations or something? I did. Um, and we are just, I guess, catching up with this story as we speak. Uh, since we haven't seen each other in a while. I really, when I went to get an MA in theology, I just... I genuinely wanted to study what I was thinking about at the time, hmm. and it had very little career interest for me hmm. because uh, doing campus ministry and doing youth ministry, which is what I would do afterwards, it didn't require a master's. Um, and so it was interesting. I studied South American liberation theology for two and a half years and then moved to Richland Hills, Texas, which is an excellent way of becoming <laughs> maladjusted. Which that's not the epicenter of liberation theology. It is. It isn't. It's in Frisco. No, <laughs> no, it's not. These are very fluent parts of the Metroplex that he is referencing. If you don't know Dallas, uh, Texas area. Yes. Um, but okay, so you're studying liberation theology. You're getting a yes. master's. One of the things that was most interesting to me because you were a uh, one of the most outspoken pacifists that I knew at the time. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Which I, I always I remember your your thoughts on that. You talked about it a lot, and then I remembered stories about you. For example, the time that ACU's football team asked you to come teach off season uh, martial arts to them, and you um, that didn't last very long. No. Do you, how did that end? I sometimes I, f- I forget exactly the, the details of you know, how that came to a conclusion. Whenever, <laughs> whenever a conflict between myself and another person goes into the the realm of violence, I find that a part of my brain clicks off, and I remember only the vaguest things. The pacifism clicked off. It clicked off, and. Uh, you know, this guy was good. He was good. He clearly had boxing training. I remember he had a, I remember he had a fast jab, but what really got me was his attitude. And once he had the attitude, I just said, you know what? Welcome oh. to the jungle, kid. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the story I've heard from uh, our mutual friend, uh, the then strength training coach, Coach Hess, mm-hmm. um, you're there teaching. He tells you the big, the, the linemen aren't going to give you a problem. But it's the little guys. And, and, and by little, they're bigger than both of us. Mark, you weigh 175? Is that right? Yeah, at the time I was a little smaller. Okay, you're 170. And uh, you're dealing with uh, college football players, probably pushing 200 plus. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one that's uh, going through this <laughs> workout and being a little too aggressive with the, the partner he's, he's lined up with. A little bit. And little so bit. you decide this is not acceptable. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Was this your liberation theology? Like you're taking care of the underdog who, of course, was actually bigger than you, the guy you're protecting. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think I have an incredible 
visceral distaste for bullying because I was a bullied kid. Okay. And so when I see it in any form, uh, a very, a very animal part of myself comes out <laughs> in response to it. And it's, it's an animal that's, uh, that's off a chain. I, I can't control it. <laughs> so you see a guy being bullied who's probably 30 pounds heavier than you. Sure. By a guy who's at least, probably, we're going to say 40 pounds bigger than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If not more? Uh, I don't know. I remember he was taller than me, but I don't remember. He weighed more than me. I'm sh- yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you, <laughs> the, the story I heard was, um, he, you say you want to go with him. And then what ends up happening is the entire football team pulls you off of this guy. Yeah. And that's, that's what I remember of your time. Teaching I remember throwing arms. like four or five punches cause he ducked the kick, which I was impressed with. Was it a head kick? It was a head kick and he <laughs> ducked it. And then when he ducked it, he kind of shook his head like, nice try, and that's when I said, this is over. <laughs> so, okay, so my most outspoken pacifist friend at the time uh, <laughs> can't teach the football team anymore because you beat up one of the players. You know, uh, pacifism is something I prescribe to others. It's nothing <laughs> that I claim for myself. <laughs> but, I say, do, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Oh, my goodness. So, if you're at... Uh, is it Methodist? Harris Methodist? Is that what yes, you said? Um, yes. And there's a chaplain that walks in the room, a good, well-dressed man, good-looking guy, and uh, you want counseling about how to deal with the existential crisis of the end of life, or you need bodyguard services. You offer both. I do. I do. I have a separate business card and separate <laughs> back pockets. But didn't you tell me that, okay, you were a pacifist then, but you've sent, well, a pacifist in theory. In theory. Um, <laughs> but has Wayward. <laughs> Hasn't that evolved? Didn't you tell me recently that you've kind of moved past that? You know, um, the, the, the way that I would communicate it, and I was affected by the work of others that I really resisted in the beginning, was that um, passivism can be used as a means uh, of continuing dominion. I think that in the United States, to demand of the, of the Black Lives Movement uh, to demand uh, of groups like it that they must be nonviolent if they are to be heard and seen as legitimate, then nonviolence is functioning in a different way. Hmm. Um, I believe, I, I still believe that nonviolence is at the heart of um, the highest spiritual perception, but I do not believe that in every instance, the thing about pacifists is that violence is always 100% of the time it represents a failure and a compromise. And that's, I guess, I guess, uh, I'm 70% pacifist, but when, especially as a man who can defend himself to use nonviolence as a discourse with women in a culture in which women are so constantly in danger, I don't, I don't like the dynamic that that creates, uh, to tell people that they can't physically defend themselves against violence is, uh, I don't believe it's appropriate for me to be an advocate of that anymore. Okay. So I get the idea of, you know, you telling a woman, uh, we're assuming the woman is not Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Um, who yeah. Yeah. Arguably the, the baddest fighter in the world, uh-huh. but you're referring to uh, a, a person smaller in stature, a larger person is trying to attack her. You think, okay, you need to be able to defend yourself. If that involves, uh, you know, a weapon, a, a mace or whatever. Okay you need to be able to protect yourself. When you talk about the black lives movement, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you can unpack that. Cause that might be a little bit more disconcerting to some people as to what you're, you're encouraging. Uh, well, I'm definitely not, I'm not encouraging violence and I'm not dis- encouraging violence against police officers or even, uh, property. 
But what I am paying attention to is uh, the ways in which certain groups of people have to adhere to a much higher moral standard uh, to be garnered with credibility. Hmm. And any failure uh, immediately marks them as being, I mean, when you read the headlines in America and when you heard the kind of discourse that was coming out of Ferguson, they were talking about the citizens of Ferguson as if they were animals that had escaped the zoo. They used the language of animals. And this was because they broke windows and cars and uh, destroyed property, which didn't help them. And it didn't have a message that was important. It, it was, a, it was self-sabotaging behavior. But um, I guess the, what I'm drawing attention to is let's pay attention to all of the violence that happens. And let's pay attention to the, the, the violence that preceded the Black Lives Movement, which in America is a very, very, very old story. And um, let it, if we are going to, if we're really going to lift up nonviolence as an ideal, it has to be lifted up for everyone. Hmm. We can't say you people have to be nonviolent, but these other institutions can embody a very, very different ethic and still be heralded as, as morally hero heroic most of the time. Hmm. So are, are you pointing to the fact that in our society there are uh, systems and structures that you're, you're pointing to as some sort of violent behavior that they're doing? Well, um, or maybe you're, you're redefining violence in the way that someone absolutely I am. I am, in my opinion, to uh, employ someone full time in such a way that they'll never be able to retire. They'll never be able to uh, afford um, medical care. They'll never be given an opportunity to live a stable life. Uh, that's that's a form of violence, in my opinion. Hmm. But, but you, someone might say it's the only way our business can work we're, we're not going to be able to make profit we're not going to be sustainable if mm -hmm. if we can only offer this job and they chose to take this job so how how am i being violent i offered the job they accepted it these are the terms of the deal I, we're, we're just trying to to make this uh this business work you know i think what i often draw attention to is that uh coercion is slippery what constitutes coercion um is, is a very elusive thing and in America, there is an increasing and growing amount of people in the United States that they accept the work that they can get and they do the things they do out of a sense of desperation. There is no other option. So that when a person says they did accept the job, well, yes, what were their alternatives? Um, it, it's, it's so funny. It's a double bind that the American poor are put in. Uh, when they don't work, um, when they don't work, we blame their plight on some vice or shortcoming that they have but then when they do work and they they plead for a higher quality of life because of their labor um we blame them for for any number of reasons well you should have got an educated job well there's nothing that the poor in america can do for the majority to recognize the kind of victimization that they have been under i think since the beginning. And when you look at other countries in the world, we recognize that you can pay people just wages. Hmm. You can lower poverty and homeless and, and not crush the, uh, the business class. You can have a flourishing economy uh, in which a, a very tiny portion of the national populace lives at or below the poverty line. That's not a fantasy. Hmm. It exists. Really? Hmm. Okay. So there's a story that you told me um, that was from your childhood involving you and your dad. And I think you had made a <clears throat> uh, some joke about someone who was working uh, a janitorial type job, mm -hmm. and 
you said, and correct me because I'm obviously wrong. This is from years ago, but like you've never seen your dad as frustrated as you making a joke about someone's janitorial type work, mm-hmm. and he made some comment about how you know honorable that is or something like. That. Can you can you fill me in on that story? Yeah, you know it's funny. I even remember the name of the guy. He was uh, he was the janitor at my middle school, I believe, and me and my friend we were kind of making fun of him. Because uh, of his appearance and because he looked like a kind of a shabby uh, person who was living in poverty. And uh, my dad very rarely got direct with me in front of other people. And uh, we were sitting in the back seat of the car and he said, a man who shows up to work and works so that he can live anywhere demands your honor and your respect. And I was, oof. Hmm. I I immediately knew that I was in the wrong and, uh, you know, my dad, he, he's a university professor, but he comes from an area of North Florida in which tense, tense class relations and tense, uh, race relations were a, a pretty indelible part of his experience. And I consider myself to be an inheritor, a secondhand inheritor. And so you've always had appreciation for you know, the struggles of people from different classes. Uh, cause obviously you and I both grew up with, uh, opportunity and privilege that you and I both were always going to go to college. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. something that was just taken for granted. And y- you still see the, um, the other side where people don't always have that and you respect that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that my, both of my parents, they, uh, their stories could have turned out very differently. I mean, my mom came to the United States when she was in her uh, early 20s, and she never had a college education. And my father was working at a paper mill in North Florida, just doing what his father had anticipated for his career. And there were years in our life where, uh, you know, when my dad was getting his graduate degree and my mom was uh, working at Pizza Hut, and we were living off that salary. And it was really till we were 15 or 16 that uh, my sister and I weren't anxious about the bills and the conversations that we heard through the bedroom walls about finances. And so in that way, um, we weren't, I can't say that we were the, that our experience embodies the American poor because we weren't, we ate every single day and whenever we needed to go to the doctors, we could, but we were close enough to the underdogs. Really? Huh? Uh, to know their names and to be invited to their kids' birthday parties and to sit in the backyards with them uh, and during their barbecues. And when you see it and when you hear it, uh, it changes you. So you get your second master's degree at TCU, Mm -hmm. uh, a university that uh, I'm pretty sure the tuition is quite hefty to get in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a private school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of wealthy people go to TCU. Undergraduates tend to be wealthy, mm-hmm. though increasingly it's uh, it's it's people who could never afford to go to TCU and people who are paying cash, and so it's actually a very divided really uh, student community. Yes, huh? Mm-hmm. I-, I was wondering how how that was for you going back to school, uh, go back to school. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you're sure. getting your second master's degree in an environment where there's a lot of people with privilege where that's not at all your experience, but I guess there's a lot of people who also have that same story at TCU, which I didn't imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard some stories from, uh, from non-traditional students, TC students, chilling stories about what it meant for them to live in America. Things I, I can only imagine, but you know, when I was at TCU, I also worked for the Catholic church there in the Catholic ministry there and working with those undergrad kids who did come from affluence and recognizing uh, that there, 
that there is kind of a morally prophetic voice that comes out of some of these kids. And I was forced to realize I had not given these people enough credit. Really? Tell me Absolutely. about that. You know, well, uh, I, it was partly that I was, I was touched by, this was the first time that I had a long enduring relationship with Roman Catholic people. Um, that wasn't just casual because I was a Protestant that had been entrusted to be a spiritual director to Catholic students, which was nothing yeah. I anticipated. Yeah, no. And to hear about the places that they came from, uh, which was oftentimes they had upward mobility from the beginning, but to also uh, watch them go to Nicaragua and the, the backwoods of nowhere and dig in the soil and speak Spanish with the locals and know that they had done this before and that they will do this again and that this is going to be a part of their adulthood as a part of their, their commitment. I realized I didn't have the full picture really? of who these kids were. Yeah. Huh. And I got a lot of surprises about what Roman Catholic, the diversity and breadth of how that's lived out, which I couldn't have done unless I, I mean, I essentially became a part of the Catholic church for a year. Really? Uh-huh. What was the, what's the biggest shock going from, you grew up in the churches of Christ, which is the tradition I'm from as well, mm -hmm. going to you know Roman Catholicism. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't like Pope Francis. Oh, really? uh, yeah. That was a big one. Um, to realize that because the Roman Catholic story is depending on whether you, uh, what you believe about the beginnings of it, it's a, it's at least a millennia older than Protestantism that having exponentially more voices and more traditions within traditions and within movements and creates a far more expansive space uh, for you to be and identify with and still be considered part of this one body. So I would meet a 60 year old woman who had essentially become, uh, a woman who was, uh, a lesbian who grew up on the West coast and who really resonated with ben Benedictine spirituality. And then I met, uh, another person who was essentially, uh, a pseudo Zen Buddhist student of, of Thomas Merton and the anti-war movement. And both of these people were best friends. And I didn't see that kind of thing happening in the Protestant church. And I think that it had a lot to do with, um, with unity and diversity, not being a dynamic tension as a part of Roman Catholic culture that mm -hmm. it allowed for that kind of freedom of space and solidarity at the so, same time. So how could Protestants be more like that? How could we get to that point where we would be able to have that sort of generous orthodoxy and generous, you know, welcoming practice? Well, this is where the book begins, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, um, Protestants and we have, we've done it. I mean, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer has become, uh, and Martin Luther King has become a saint saints for us. I think that until we recover, um, sainthood and the lives of the saints, um, uh, in many different times and places, we won't really be able to recognize the ways in which the faith lives itself out and must live in itself out in a pluriform, uh, in a pluriform way. Um, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran and, uh, and at the same time, Dorothy Day was Roman Catholic and th the Quakers of North America. Uh, my gosh, the way that that has unfolded in a way that looks like neither of them. When we, um, when we make space to tell the stories of the saints to each other and to our children, then we'll recognize that the faith cannot be a monolithic thing. It has to be uh, a multifaceted thing. Yeah. So I was talking with, uh, Ian Morgan Cron who um, 
he wrote a book called uh, Chasing Francis, and it's about how mm. a Protestant guy finds St. Francis, and it just opens his eyes up during a very uh, tough time in, in his story. And he, so, you know, the question was, well, I'm a Protestant. You know, we don't, the like, Chasing Francis, the idea of, like, following a saint is really weird because Protestants don't have saints. He goes, Luke, yes, you do. You have plenty of saints. Rick Warren is a saint right now. He functions mm. in that capacity. Mm-hmm. And so you're pointing to, like, we need to find these people and honor them and say these are people we need to learn from. Uh, yes. Is that what you mean by a saint? Not as though you're, because uh, there's some Protestants who are going, well, I don't pray to, I'm not going to pray to Dorothy Day. I'm oh, not sure. Gonna pray. You know, so it's sure. more of a, a position of honor that we can learn from. Is that where you're going with that? Yes, uh, and to recognize that um, saints are always deeply flawed characters. That's not an exception to sainthood. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's a crucial piece of sainthood is, uh, is th- this kind of uh, self-contradiction. And at times fear and the amounts, the immense amount of doubt and inner wrestling that goes with sainthood. So it's not about moral perfection. It's also to realize that many saints are secret. They live hidden lives. Um, You know, Henry Nouwen wrote a lot about that, that some of the purest lives that have been lived, we won't know about them. Mm -hmm. And we have to have eyes and ears uh, to not lift them up, um, to not lift them up and make them famous stories but to um, to realize that when we look at Paul and we look at Peter and, you know, when I look at these people in the New Testament, I need a bridge between their time and yeah, my era. Yeah. I need a bridge to make sense of that. And people that have lived in the 19th and 20th century for me they do that. have been really uh, helpful in that regard. So I've been recently introduced over the last uh, year or so to uh, uh, the little flower, Teresa of Lisieux. Is yes. That, is that your surname? I always yeah. feel like I butchered yeah, it. Yeah, I have it's a French accent. Yeah. And I'm yeah. not going to. How are you going to do I'm it? American. <laughs> I have a freedom accent, not a French accent. <laughs> wow. No, uh, but like her story, she short life. She didn't live that long. Didn't mm-hmm. didn't write a book or anything like that. Yet she is uh, venerated as a doctor. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it's a big deal. It's like the Hall of Fame, right, mm-hmm. for Catholics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so she's a big, but her life was so simple. It, she was just you know, loving the people she was around and the people who were annoying to her. And that, I love what you're talking about. Like, that's a bridge for us. We can see that as a paragon and say, oh, she did what we all, in some ways, could live into. Mm-hmm. It's not like this, I'm going to move to Calcutta, but I'm like right where I am right here now. I mm-hmm. can do that. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of seeing the failures of these people, like the doubts yes. and the struggles. And I don't know about you, but when I see stories of people who have done like big things, mm it doesn't inspire me as much as when I hear the people that I really admire and they talk about their failures, the things that didn't yes. work and the way that they have dropped the ball on things. And it makes it far more um, realistic for me to be able to grasp it. Like if something's yes. like really smooth and shiny and pretty, yes. like you can't hold on that. But if something's like has edges, like yes, that's absolutely. when you can connect with someone. Absolutely. You know, uh, the biggest struggle in my life is, um, is to disengage from suffering that I'm able to ignore. Um, I'll struggle with it forever and I'll, and I'll stumble upon that repeatedly, I'm sure. And so when I think about, uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who got essentially elected to be Bishop because they needed a guy who was a theological nerd that would stay in the office and not kick up any dust. And he only upon really seeing uh, the dead body of one of his best friend did uh, not his own heroism, not his own innate prophetic edge, but just uh, the corpse of a person that he loved forced him to uh, risk his life, um, to speak on these radio broadcasts and say things that uh, 
they're translated into English. But when I hear the things that he said over these radio broadcasts, it was a, it was a guy who was a theological nerd who could have lived forever in the library of, uh, of his office. But uh, in seeing the, the bodies of the El Salvadoran people, he was forced to transform into uh, an individual that knew he was going to be assassinated. Really? Hmm. And, you know, I, I, I never aspire to anything of that greatness. But to see um, the ways in which uh, heroism isn't born, I think it's sometimes it's baptized by, by power and atrocity, you know. Hmm. And that's what makes it happen. It's interesting you talking about disengaging from suffering because as a chaplain, you're you're dealing with suffering on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like, uh, as someone who deals with the struggle of, um, I'm assuming you, you you obviously see the the tragedies, the car accidents, and the the terrible things that are unexpected, but you also see the um, the people are probably in the hospitals, rough situations because they didn't have opportunities for healthcare and they're mm-hmm. coming in at the end of, uh, of a journey, which I don't know, maybe it could have been thwarted. Um, mm-hmm. the, the illness that is, w- what has it been like as a chaplain dealing with suffering? Is, is that been mm-hmm. uh, eye opening for you? Sure. I mean, I've learned how, uh, what, what entering into this work has exposed to me is that, Anxiety has an incredible power over my life, and then I'm way more judgmental than I ever gave credit for. Hmm. What do you mean by anxiety? Um, that there are many things that I've done in my life that I labeled as being sensitive or I labeled as um, not wanting to be too intrusive or gentleness. But in reality, what I saw was it's a it's a deep fear within myself of going to where I needed to go with other people that that terrified me. Hmm. And then I learned that I you know I'm way I knew I was judgmental I just didn't know how judgmental I was. Um, judgmental particularly, I deal with a lot of uh, I deal with a lot of people whose uh, medical catastrophe, excuse me, is is an extension of decisions that they made over a very long time. And the challenge to recognize that their suffering is suffering, even if they smoke two packs a day for 40 years. Because well, you're a very fit person. Diet, exercise has been a big part of your life as long as I've known you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so is that the hard thing? Like you, <clears throat> you see like, well, if you would have done X, Y, and Z, then you wouldn't have been in this, this hospital right now. You know, I, uh, I had to struggle several years ago with kind of the element of fat and obesity shaming. I don't like that word obesity shaming in our culture that had become a part of my perception Hmm. had become a part of me. And I had to confront and I confronted it before I came to do chaplaincy work. Um, but to recognize that, you know, I watched a 30 year old guy, uh, die and, and, and bleed out because he drank since he was a kid and to realize that, um, Maybe he was, in a sense, responsible for this, but to recognize that it still represents a real loss mm-hmm. and to struggle with that and to, res- and to struggle with the judgment uh, that I have, not so that the judgmentalism goes away, but to acknowledge that it's there hmm. and to try to not give it as much power. So you don't think that ever, like, that judgmentalism can ever be completely gotten rid of? It's always mm-hmm. going to be there, but you just have for to, me. to manage it? I do. I think I have to pay attention to being judgmental, um, I have to be attentive to non-compliant patients who uh, refuse to do what they're told. 
mm-hmm. uh, who refuse to manage their chronic disease in a way that they have the ability to. Yeah. Uh, I'll always kind of, in the back of my mind, be angry with them. But what I do with that anger is is what I have power over. Yeah, and that seems like ultimately what like spiritual practices are saying. Like you, you're always going to have things that you wrestle with. The question mm. is like what you do with them. Do you do you give in to? Sure, them? I think that's you know that's the way I understand the language of discerning the spirits. Is, is yeah. it's not a I don't understand spiritual warfare as supernatural forces at play, but equally real forces within oneself that are battling in constant tension. Yeah. Well, talk. To, you said something earlier about anxiety before we got to the judgmental. Um, I don't know about you, but do you find when you deal with other people's mortality, your mortality is brought to the surface more? Or mm-hmm. what, what, is that the kind of anxiety you're talking about, or is there other anxieties which are... There's definitely other types of anxiety. Um, the anxiety to be emotional with other people, you know? Uh, what I do you mean would, by that? I, I came from a pastoral model in which to be uh, to be emotional in front of other people who are mourning is to mistake your role and to give up an important part of power. Um and to realize that, A, sometimes I'm incapable of not being emotional. Sometimes you see things, you hear things, people, oh gosh, people say things that will, are uh, an imprint in my mind till the day I die. Not just the things that they said, but the, the particular way that they said it. Can you give an example of one without destroying confidentiality? Uh, yeah, you know, it's so... On paper, it's it's this very insignificant event. You know, I probably won't be able to tell the story all the way through. I'm realizing <laughs> other people have asked me about it before when I try to tell it. It's essentially, it's a story of what a uh, a granddaughter said to her grandmother who had just died and she was too late to arrive there on time. And... Uh, I heard what she said and, and the way that she said it as well. It was just, wow. Hmm. Okay. So I've been crying a lot at church cause I'm leaving the church. I started, so I'm not going to make you go down this road since sure, people sure. have let me off the hook. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially to, to, to kind of capture it, to realize that, um, other people's pain can open up something in you hmm. that you don't have access to without them. And, uh, for me, I got into ministry, you know, people think that I kind of left evangelical Christianity because I had a political problem with it. And that's partly true. But what I remember since I was a kid was, um, the culture of evangelical Christianity makes joy and happiness and gratitude, um, the most authentic posture from which you communicate and live out faith. And I could just, I tried and tried and tried, and I couldn't make that true for myself. Um, I couldn't make joy and excitement and just gladness um, the ideal by which I communicated and experienced the faith. And I wanted to. Who wouldn't want it's, to be glad? It's not your personality. I'm not. I'm just, I'm like so many members of my family. We have to re- work really hard to be happy. And most of the time we're not. And um, and, and that's really where worship as uh, constantly being an act of and communication of joy and excitement always made me feel like a guilty hidden person because I could not acquire this thing. I couldn't get some might think that if we're constantly pushing for joy and gratitude or, you know, joy and and celebratory moments Mm -hmm. that it would help someone who doesn't naturally go there, get there more. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it actually had the, the inverse effect that it would make you push away because you don't 
go there? Is that what you experienced? Absolutely. And you know, uh, I, I love talking to people who have lost their faith um, as a form of instruction. And those people's stories for me are uh, instructive. And I think that what's lots of times we do things in our life for emotional reasons, but later we make sense of them for intellectual reasons. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do that. I think everyone does that. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of, I'm, I can think of four in particular who they all, when they narrate why they left Christianity, it's about intellectual coherence. But when I was with them at the time, I recognized that, um, the church and the community of the church could not really listen to their depression or disappointment or um, the, the suffering that was at the heart of their substance abuse. And so it was an intolerance that a community had for pain that was the, that created the watershed. Really? Yeah. Well, okay. So someone who, it, it, I think uh, William James had the language of uh, summer Christian, winter Christian. Mm -hmm. And so if this is being described, what you're describing, he might call as uh, winter Christianity mm -hmm. and the more you know positive, upbeat, always happy is the summer Christianity, um, which is like, that's your average Sunday service, summer Christianity. Mm -hmm. For for those of us who might be more summer Christians and we hear this and we go, I don't, I don't really relate. I don't know how to help. And they're trying to grasp ways that we can, they can do that and make a a winter Christian experience that is uh, honoring and accepting the people's position who are, are on your side of the table. Mm. What what are, what could they do to help that? How could they get there? You know, I think that it begins um, for me in conversation with people that are summer Christians, or even I was just I would call them summer personalities. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, I think that 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 kind of predisposition exists before you've accepted certain propositions Completely about agree. faith yeah, fair. Um, is to recognize that happy people have lost things that are important to them. And I've had many conversations with people that are just, they, the smile and the gladness is uh, really, it's a deep and authentic part of them. But when they, they talk about things that they've lost that are, it's kind of irresolvable. Uh, it escapes meaning making for them. I, I see them tap into a part of themselves that's equally true. Hmm. And I think that when we create space for summer or happy people to recognize that you do have suffering in your life that is real and true and a part of you, then they'll be better tuned to hear the resonance of people that are dis depressed and despairing um, and in dark places. Even if they aren't in those places, they... Um, they can feel the reverberations of those people's lives without as much internal resistance. Hmm. Makes sense. You said before that uh, you came from pastoral training where you felt like uh, to maintain, as you said, the power, you can't be like emotionally, um, or you can't, you mm -hmm. can't weep with them. You can't, yes. you have to hold your emotions back. Uh, you, the way you said that made me assume that you've kind of evolved on that stance. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's changed? It is. I mean, I, uh, you also have to be careful to not use your emotion as a tool, uh, which is a great temptation that's often hard to identify. A tool? How? Uh, a tool, you, you know, I mean, nothing can win you credibility more than tears in the right place and right time. Um, and so in that way, if you elicit emotion as a means for um, establishing and displaying your compassion, 
then that's oh that could did be you just cry earlier to make me think that you're a better person uh no that one that one's for real that i'll cry real. later though and you'll see that <laughs> i can really turn that one on okay uh, so if we're not using it as a tool but we're we're genuinely um be okay well, what's what's even the difference like how do i obviously if you're okay i need to cry right now so they're gonna like me of course that's wrong but most of us aren't doing that it's mm-hmm. something that's far more subtle or Sure. The first instruction that I found was, uh, I won't mention his name because I don't have permission. It was a professor of mine who said, uh, you never cry when you're giving a eulogy. It's not your place and it's not your space to do that then. Mm-hmm. It's their space to mourn and that's not a, that's yeah, right. I, I was, I was, I heard the same thing from someone. Yes. And, uh, and what's interesting about that personality, that person, is that when my uh, father went through a particularly difficult time, it was that person who did contact him, my dad, and did uh, share the burden with him during a particularly shadowy season. And uh, I recognized in that way that there are places where your sadness should not be the centerpiece. But that doesn't mean that um, that another element of your pastoral identity is is sharing in grief as so, well. So you're saying that guy broke his own policy in a way. I'm saying that in he a ke- positive way. No, I'm saying that he kept it in a, he kept his policy in a way that was graceful and appropriate and was uh, very uh, agile. Um, that that it's not a it's not a rule that applies in every context. Okay. You have to uh, you have to have a serious wisdom about when my sadness is a part of authenticity, and when you have to hold your sadness in to do something a little bit equally important or more important. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, saying you're not going to cry during eulogy isn't something you have complete power over either. No. So there's no policy. It's just there. You don't want to abuse it. Mm-hmm. But. In some ways, the person who says, I'm never going to be emotional when I'm you know, helping someone and they just found out that their you know, child's not going to make it, um, you, you come off like a robot if you're not in that moment. And the only emotion that makes sense uh, is to you know, follow the, you know, the, the Jewish tradition of weep with those who weep, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at times, you're struck when you enter a place that's meant to be sad and the family's laughing, you know? Uh at times for me to laugh with those who laugh is an equal challenge when somebody has just uh, just died and the family starts telling the goofiest stories about them and you're not ready for that mm-hmm. you have to be able to go to unexpected places of celebration as well do you find yourself judgmental in that moment to say this is not appropriate right here and right now i feel myself relieved most of the time when i see that um i think this is this is healthy um, when I see people tell funny stories about things that the other person did that were quirky and at times critical, I, I'm relieved that they're able to do that already. And even if it, even if at the time it's a little bit medicative, fine. Why, fine. why are you relieved? I, I don't understand. I'm relieved that even in the face of a person's death, that they're able to look at parts of their life that they took joy in and say, that's equally true as their death, right. that these things that they did it is in no way diminished because they're no longer with us. I think that's big picture emotional perception. And when they're able to do that, I go, you know, your family's going to be okay. Hmm. You're going to be okay. Hmm. Hmm. Mark, this has been fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, um, 
I hope people like you as much as I do. They should. They <laughs> should like you. Okay, uh, when are you going to get a PhD? Is that going to happen sometime? No, it's not. Well, I, I've always thought you need to get a PhD. You, you have a very prof- professorial feel to you, but you're not going to do that. Chaplain, long term, is that your, your game plan right now? You know, I don't. I kind of have a rule against planning um, because so many of my plans have been thwarted, and the disappointment that came from that, I don't want to sign up for again. So um, I'm going to do chaplaincy for the time being. But wherever I am in a church, education is something that I get I get picked out to do it. Mm-hmm. At the church where I am at, I'm I'm as involved in adult education as my schedule will allow. And uh, I do want to write, but I don't want to. I want. I used to want to write academic work, um, and then I realized, you know, there's a different audience. What are you going to write about now? I want to. I want to write a uh, kind of an episodic uh, memoir that at times veers into the philosophical reflection. Uh, I want to write <laughs> the book if if Russ Cole had been raised in the church and then became a, a disenfranchised mainline Protestant with serious depression. I think that my story <laughs> is actually a, a, a really great uh, and truthful embodiment of what that would look like. And when I tell other people the story that I want to tell and the parts of my story that I want to tell, the feedback is always, this will help so many people, but you just have to learn to manage your time and quit putting it off. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I would love for you to start writing 500 words a day about this today. Sure, sure. And then whenever it's done, I will help you whatever way I can. Well, thank you. Because I will help you get that out because it, it, people need to hear that. Sure, sure. Mark, this has been fun. It has. I'm glad I got to see you. Yeah. It's when been... you came up and tapped on my window, I was like, Luke Norsworthy, <laughs> still the most ageless, <laughs> handsome man I know. Outstanding. We're going to end on that note. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.